Historian Mary Dudziak opens Cold War Civil Rights, her groundbreaking book on the international dimension of the civil rights movement, with the question that perplexed America's imperial Cold Warriors. Jimmy Wilson's name has not been remembered in the annals of Cold War history, but in 1958, this African-American handyman was the center of international attention. After he was sentenced to death in Alabama for stealing less than $2 in change, Wilson's case was thought to epitomize the harsh consequences of American racism. It brought to the surface international anxiety about the state of American race relations. Because the United States was the presumptive leader of the free world, racism in the nation was a matter of international concern. How could American democracy be a beacon during the Cold War and a model for those struggling against Soviet oppression if the United States itself practiced brutal discrimination against minorities within its own borders? Welcome back to Ending the Myth, the show where we explore the nooks and crannies of the American psyche with the help of Greg Grin's book, The End of the Myth, occasionally. (laughs) I'm Brian. (laughs) And I'm Munya. (laughs) And today we have a treat for you in that we are going to be talking about Grandin's book, specifically uh, about chapter 12's discussion of civil rights, imperialism, and the legacy of Martin Luther King. A banger chapter. Very good. Make sure you read it. I know that this has not been a requirement for this show. <laughs> yeah, I mean, episodes. literally, <laughs> we have not structured this show to be like friendly in any way to following along like chapter <laughs> through chapter. But you should still like read it. You know, it's kind of like a uh, free jazz in a way. You know, it all you know, it trails off a, a you know a path that of our choosing, and it all circles back around to the mm-hmm. next chapter. Yeah. It's also like jazz, and it's mainly about the information we don't give you. <laughs> <laughs> you have to listen to the notes she's not playing. I can do that at home. But uh, before we get into Grandin's book specifically, uh, why don't we set the table a little bit? In 1945, communists clashed on the steps of City Hall with self-styled fascist gray shirts who saluted the state of Texas for his recent victory against, quote, the N-word vote, and labeled communist agents of the, quote, Jewocracy. Observers on the ground noted the gray search penchant for Nazi salutes and Ku Klux Klan methods. But this fight wasn't happening on the streets of Birmingham, Alabama, or rural Mississippi. No. These clashes were in the streets of Johannesburg, South Africa, and were followed by a race riot that, according to one journalist, was, quote, one of the worst outbreaks of racial hooliganism ever seen. In 1948, the South African government in Pretoria declared its policy of apartheid, a formal system of racial segregation that, in words of historian Gerald Horn, 
the U.S. had, quote, midwifed into existence via the influence of American cultural institutions and diplomatic aid. Many around the world were, at least, uncomfortable with the idea of a white racial state arising in the immediate aftermath of the defeat of Nazism in Europe. But to quote Gerald Horn, Washington was wedded to the idea of South Africa as a key node in their chain of anti-communist allies. In many ways, U.S. policy towards the apartheid government in Pretoria mirrored their support for the French effort to reoccupy Vietnam and the American pacification campaigns in the Philippines and South Korea immediately following the war. Again, quoting Horn, backing South Africa was a way to destabilize anti-colonial movements and blunt their U.S. backers by targeting them as dupes of Moscow. This strategy came at a cost, however. The genocidal war in South Korea was deeply unpopular in the United States and ended with Korean and Chinese forces fighting the U.S. to a stalemate. The French were humiliated in Vietnam, leading to an American invasion of the country that would last two decades. In the case of South Africa, there was momentum building internationally to condemn the apartheid state. In 1959, Ghana, Jamaica, Barbados, Grenada, Dominica, Trinidad, and British Guiana all announced they were going to discontinue trade with South Africa. The next year, thousands gathered outside a police station in Sharpville to protest South Africa's racist international passport system. Police opened fire on the crowd, killing 69 people. World opinion was outraged, and South Africa quickly became a pariah state, but critically, a pariah state held aloft by American and British power. American support for apartheid South Africa in the face of growing international condemnation, combined with news out of the United States about how black people were treated within the borders of the self-appointed guarantor of freedom and democracy, began to have a cumulative impact on American foreign policy. As the post-war independence movement swept Africa, Latin America, and Asia, the U.S. sought to bring these governments into the fold of the empire. The Soviet Union merely needed to distribute American news stories of lynchings, beatings, and other travesties of justice, such as the case of Jimmy Wilson, in order to sour people on the promise of joining the Pax Americana. American media was quick to label this as merely Soviet propaganda, but the propaganda was, of course, all true. As ambassadors from the newly independent countries discovered when they ventured more than a few miles outside of Washington, D.C. or New York City. In June of 1961, Malik Sow, the African nation of Chad's first ambassador to the United Nations, was denied service at a Maryland diner because he was black. He would discover that this was a common experience for African dignitaries who traveled Route 40 between New York and D.C. Once in Washington, Sow told the State Department, quote, Situations like this make it very difficult for African diplomats to leave New York and Washington and they make normal relations between the United States and African countries very strained. Informed of the situation, President Kennedy responded by asking, quote, why would anybody want to drive Route 40 when you can just fly? America was the country of Jim Crow. America was a supporter of apartheid. America was reinstituting Western colonialism abroad. Given these facts, which were plain to see for all those who lived outside of the borders of the U.S., American policy planners were left with two options for courting the third world. On one hand, they could stop supporting formal racism at home and abroad. <laughs> but that strategy came with costs. <laughs> Domestically, Southern Democrats continued to be a key constituency within the Democratic Party. 
In the Senate, they voted as a disciplined block, effectively giving the Southern states control of the Senate, a state of affairs dating back to the collapse of Reconstruction. Add this to the fact that racism was extremely profitable in both Northern and Southern industry, where black workers could be paid significantly less than white workers for the same work, the difference pocketed by their employers as profit. The tension created by this system of informal wage segregation would then drive all wages down, making capitalists even richer still. And it's worth maybe taking a second to really underline this point for all the reasons that are given for the persistence of racism in America, the fact that it is extremely profitable seems to be one that we don't like to talk about very much. Yeah, you know? right. <laughs> um, using median family income to take into account factors like less available work, working hours, and other issues that face Black people in particular, uh, the economist Victor Perlow estimated the losses to minority communities due to racism to be around $522 billion in 1992. Or to word it another way, the American capitalist class seized an extra half trillion dollars in profits by simply paying non-white workers less. Unless we think, oh, but that was in 1992, before <laughs> Bill Clinton, before yeah, right. Barack Obama, before... That was the, the H.W. Bush years. That's what uh, <laughs> the Republicans did. <laughs> Things have changed since then. Uh, in 2012, the Economic Policy Institute noted that the gap in median family income between black and white workers has either stagnated or declined every year since 1970. Now, that means that the inequality gap between black and white family income has remained exactly the same or gotten worse essentially for 50 years mm. and i couldn't find any current figures on uh median family income because they seem to have moved to median household income those are two slightly different metrics although they measure kind of the same thing um but census data shows uh, that in 1970, that gap stood in median household income at 63%. So black households were making 63% of what white households made and has since widened to 61% today, right? So that gap's actually grown uh, since 1970. And if you were to look across that span, like I said, it, like the Economic Policy Institute mentions, it either stagnates or declines, essentially, uh, that whole time grows larger. Uh, yeah. And on top of the wage losses, the abject conditions that black workers are kept in, in is used by the capitalist class to discipline white workers. And by lowering the wage floor, a capitalist can lower wages across the board. Right. I mean, you know. Yeah. In, in short, like racism is the one quick trick to boost your profits. A life yeah, for capitalism. It, it literally is like a w one weird trick that, you know, other than every other one weird trick, this one actually does work like and is yeah. really effective. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. yeah. Internationally, South African apartheid proved to be extremely lucrative for American capital as well. In 1963, American companies in South Africa were averaging 27% annual profit, and U.S. investment in the country was over $600 million, nearly $6 billion today. Munya, is 27% annual profit good? <laughs> is that a good rate 20, of return? That is a pretty significant rate of return. I mean, that that is pretty incredible. I wonder yeah. if that's going to play into foreign policy decisions. <laughs> oh, well, no way yeah. to know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
South Africa was also home to the largest gold mines in the world, and regulating gold production was key to a Bretton Woods system that relied on a fixed dollar-to-gold ratio for a currency exchange. On the other hand, if America did not want to confront systematic racism, it could offer words, empty words, running (laughs) PR was cheap, easy, and it kept profits flowing. Oh, it's nice to know that some tricks never get old. Yeah, you know. In 1958, the U.S. supported a resolution in the U.N. that offered a soft condemnation of apartheid. While angering Pretoria, it did not stop the flow of American money and aid into the country. However, as 1961 rolled around, it seemed that there might be a change in the way that America handled the race issue. President Kennedy came into office more emboldened to speak on the issue of civil rights than any of his predecessors. But in private, quote, Kennedy spoke of blacks mostly as a political constituency to be bought, appeased or written off as the occasion demanded, according to journalist Rick Perlstein. Regarding U.S. policy towards South Africa, as historian Gabriel Kolkol writes, quote, The Kennedy administration allowed those within its own ranks opposed to the apartheid regime to criticize it publicly. But privately, it assured the South African government that cooperation on questions of mutual interest would continue. Domestically, the hypocrisy of American rhetoric around civil rights and equality under the law was demonstrated daily in the apartheid states of the American South. In 1961, the Congress on Racial Equality, or CORE, put on the Freedom Rides. The plan was to load 13 passengers, seven black and six white, on a public bus in Washington, D.C., and then ride that bus through the South, ending in New Orleans. CORE did this to challenge the South's unlawful forced segregation of public transit. In Virginia, riders suffered only aggressive harassment, but that would be the calmest part of the ride. More than 300 Freedom Riders were arrested in North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. In Alabama, local police departments coordinated with the Ku Klux Klan to attack the Freedom Riders first in the town of Anniston, just across the Georgia border, and then again in Birmingham. In Anniston, the tires of the bus were slashed, disabling it. Then a firebomb was thrown into the bus. A collection of Klansmen and cops attempted to hold the doors of the bus closed in order to burn the Freedom Riders alive. After escaping the bus, riders were brutally beaten. Local hospitals refused to treat the survivors, and an armed guard of local civil rights workers had to organize their escort out of town. In Birmingham, new Freedom Riders got the same treatment. Police and Klansmen disabled the bus and beat the riders nearly to death, hospitalizing most of them. It would later come out that at least one of the Klansmen in the melee was also working for the FBI at the time. What? Hmm, whoa. When news got out of America's own race riots, President John Kennedy and his brother Robert were furious with the civil rights movement. (laughs) They pleaded with CORE to stop any effort to integrate public transit in the South. The Freedom Ride would continue, however. And fearing that CORE might run out of volunteers, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, pledged to send reinforcements to keep the rides going. Historian Mary Dudziak explains Kennedy's response, quote, President Kennedy was angered by the Freedom Riders' persistence. As biographer Richard Reeves put it, the president was upset in part because the violence against the riders was exactly the kind of thing the communists used to make the United States look bad around the world. 
He told civil rights advisor Harris Walford, stop them. Get your friends off of those buses. Kennedy felt that the movement was, quote, embarrassing him and the country on the eve of the meeting in Vienna with Khrushchev. He was preparing for his first presidential trip overseas, and he hoped to draw the world's attention away from the disaster at the Bay of Pigs and establish himself as a confident and accomplished world leader. The Freedom Riders interfered with those objectives. According to Wofford, Kennedy, quote, supported every American's right to stand up or sit down for his rights, but not to ride for them in the spring of 1961. The United States Information Agency, or USIA, confirmed Kennedy's fears. As USIA noted, the attacks on Alabama, quote, had dealt a severe blow to U.S. prestige, which might adversely affect his position in leadership in the free world, as well as weaken the overall effectiveness of the Western alliance. The violence against people fighting for civil rights was a stark reminder that America's pledge of equality under the law was a false promise. USIA reported that, quote, Chinese accounts bore down hard on the theme that rampant racism has exposed the savage nature of American freedom and democracy. In 1962, the threat of white racist violence becoming international news again loomed as James Meredith prepared to become the first ever black student at the University of Mississippi. Learning his lesson from the Freedom Riders, Kennedy nationalized the Mississippi National Guard and sent federal troops in to occupy the campus in Oxford. Riots erupted, killing three, including a French journalist. But USIA reported that Kennedy's affirmative action to protect Meredith had been well-received internationally. Top Kennedy advisor Arthur Schlesinger tallied up the victory. Quote, three weeks after Oxford, Sekou Touré, president of Guinea, and Ben Bella, president of Algeria, were prepared to deny refueling facilities to Soviet planes bound for Cuba during the missile crisis. Efforts to gain the assistance of newly independent African nations should not be confused as representing some sort of change in the working of the American empire. Just two weeks after securing concessions from Torre and Bella, the CIA orchestrated the arrest of another prominent African leader. In the wake of the Sharpeville Massacre, the African National Congress, or ANC, created its own military wing, Nkomto's Wesuizwe. Nkomto was tasked with waging armed struggle against the apartheid government in South Africa. Since its founding in January of 1961, the CIA has been tracking the movements of its leader, a young lawyer named Nelson Mandela. Having gone underground, Mandela traveled South Africa in secret under assumed names. On August 5th, 1962, Mandela's car was intercepted by police on his way to Johannesburg. Paul Eckel, the CIA station chief in Pretoria, would later brag, quote, We turned Mandela over to the South African security branch. We gave them every detail, what he would be wearing, the time of day, just where he would be. They picked him up. In 2016, Donald Rickard, the CIA station chief in Durban at the time, expanded further on the motivation for giving up Mandela to Pretoria. Americans believe Mandela was completely under the control of the Soviet Union. He could have incited a war with South Africa. The United States would have to get involved. And things would have gone to hell. We were teetering on the brink here and it had to be stopped, which meant Mandela had to be stopped. And I put a stop to it. 
There were immediate suspicions across South Africa and the larger African nationalist movement that the CIA had been involved in Mandela's capture, but the U.S. had been able to maintain plausible deniability. The arrest strained the U.S. relationship with the African people, but it gave African leaders eager for a Cold War aid a fig leaf to hide their cooperation behind. As Paul Eckel would note, quote, it was one of our greatest coups. The Southern Christian Leadership Council, or SCLC, and its most prominent leader, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., spent the spring of 1963 fighting the police in the streets of Birmingham. Peaceful civil rights marchers were met with fire hoses and vicious police dogs that tore at men, women, and children, all in front of press cameras. Photos of the racist violence spread around the country and around the globe. President Kennedy called a meeting of his top advisors to advise on a plan to deal with the crisis. As Kennedy's assistant attorney general, Burke Marshall, later remembered, the situation, quote, was a matter of national and international concern at the time because of the mass demonstrations. The pictures of the police dogs and firehouses going throughout the country stirred the feelings of every Negro in the country, most whites in the country, and I suppose particularly colored persons throughout the world. USIA reported that the U.S. was losing the goodwill that it had gained during the crisis at the University of Mississippi a year prior. The nation, quote, took a heavy beating in Ghana over Birmingham. In Nigeria, quote, substantial improvement over the past two years in Nigerian public understanding of progress in U.S. race relations is being rapidly eroded by reports, photographs, and TV coverage from Alabama. While the police riots in Alabama continued through May, the leaders of the independent African states met in Ethiopia to convene in the first conference of African heads of state and government. At the conference, they formed the Organization of African Unity, an organization designed to aid and strengthen an independent Africa. On the second day of the meeting, Milton Obote, the prime minister of Uganda, read aloud a letter to President Kennedy where he declared that Africans consider American blacks to be, quote, our own kith and kin, and that colonialism and race discrimination are one of the fundamental issues for this future of our civilization. He went on. Nothing is more paradoxical that these events should take place in the United States at the time, when that country is anxious to project its image before the world screen as the archetype of democracy and the champion of freedom. Africans, who have borne of the white man's burden for centuries, feel that our freedom and independence would be a mere sham if our black brethren elsewhere in Africa and in the United States still remain in political, social, and economic bondage. A black American quoted by the writer James Baldwin summed up the feelings of many Americans in the U.S. At the rate things are going here, all of Africa will be free before we can get a lousy cup of coffee. When it came to mainstream American politics, the international dimension of the civil rights movement remained the province of backroom meetings of foreign policy intellectuals. When Kennedy gave his landmark speech on civil rights during the summer of 1963 in the lead up to the March on Washington, his only reference to the outside world was in regard to the difficult position that American capitalism's commitment to segregation had put its imperial ambitions. Quote, Today, we are committed to a worldwide struggle to promote and protect the rights of all who wish to be free. And when Americans are sent to Vietnam or West Berlin, we do not ask for whites only. 
It ought to be possible, therefore, for American students of any color to attend any public institution they select without having to be backed up by troops. Among civil rights leaders, the Cold War had taken its toll on their desire to look abroad. The mainstream of the movement had been chastened by a decade of McCarthyite attacks that had labeled them as un-American and communist dupes. At the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom in August of 1963, the head of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, John Lewis, only made an oblique reference to the international struggle when he mentioned that, quote, one man, one vote is the African cry. It is ours, too. Martin Luther King didn't mention the world outside of the United States at all in his now famous I Have a Dream speech. The tenor of the march had been toned down, partially in accordance with the wishes of the Kennedy administration. Kennedy advisors worked with the SCLC to help them send the right message and avoid criticizing Kennedy's civil rights policy. They even went so far as to have the Justice Department draft an alternative speech for SNCC leader John Lewis, whose speech they found objectionable. King ultimately got Lewis to tone down his speech on his own, without the Kennedy's help. The USIA worked to shape the international message of the march before it even began, hoping that a peaceful march of black Americans on the nation's capital would demonstrate the democratic promise of American society. When the march went off without a hitch, USA reported, quote, Most comment found the Washington march a ringing affirmation of the power of the American democratic process. Many papers specifically contrasted the opportunity granted by a free society with the despotic suppression practiced by the USSR. They even noticed that the Chinese communist press found, quote, little to exploit in the peaceful nature of the march. The March on Washington was the high point of American liberal politics in the civil rights movement. It demonstrated that a nonviolent event led by mainstream civil rights leaders in quiet coordination with government officials could produce spectacular headlines that help out all involved. It produced one of the few moments of the decades-long civil rights movement that you are virtually guaranteed to see on film in school. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it produced one of the most enduring and off-quoted bits of American oratory with Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. But the good feelings could not last. On September 15th, two weeks after the march, a bomb exploded in the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Inside the church were four young girls getting ready for Sunday school. America once again showed itself for what it was, to the world and to its own people. Out of this disaster, the civil rights movement began to take on a new character. In 1964, Stokely Carmichael, now Kwame Ture, took over leadership of SNCC. In 1966, Carmichael gave his famous Black Power speech, where he rejected nonviolence as a fundamental principle. He would later make this famous formulation about Martin Luther King's one fatal mistake that, quote, in order for nonviolence to work, your opponent must have a conscience. The United States has none. The American Civil Rights Movement also began to rediscover the international world again. In 1967, Huey Newton and Bobby Seale purchased a box of Mao's Little Red Book and resold them on the UC Berkeley campus. The proceeds were used to purchase weapons for Oakland's new black power organization, the Black Panther Party. Seale would later state that Mao's writings would form the basis of the Black Panther's views on international struggle. In his memoir, Revolutionary Suicide, 
Huey Newton would comment on the influence of the international struggle against imperialism had on the Black Panther Party. Quote, we also read, The literature of oppressed people and their struggles for liberation in other countries is very large, and we poured over these books to see how their experience might help us understand our plight. We read the works of Frantz Fanon, particularly The Wretched of the Earth, the four volumes of Chairman Mao Tse-sung and Che Guevara's Guerrilla Warfare. Che and Mao were veterans of people's wars, and they had worked out successful strategies for liberating their people. We read these men's work because we saw them as kinsmen. The oppressor who had controlled them was controlling us, both directly and indirectly. We believed it was necessary to know how they gained their freedom in order to go about getting ours. Meanwhile, the constantly escalating Vietnam War would create the demonic suction tube, in the words of Martin Luther King, that would suck the will out of the Johnson administration and its collection of the Kennedy holdovers to pursue even modest liberal reforms on civil rights. In April of 1967, King, the longtime face of the mainstream civil rights movement, finally had to break with the post-war liberal consensus. In South Africa, Nelson Mandela, along with eight other co-defendants, began the Rivonia trial in December of 1963. They were charged with treason and attempting to overthrow the South African state, charges that carried the death penalty. Mandela opened up his defense with a three-hour speech that he modeled after the History Will Absolve Me speech that Fidel Castro had given in 1953 at his own treason trial. Mandela concluded his remarks, stating, quote, during my lifetime, I have dedicated myself to the struggle of the African people. I have fought against white domination, and I have fought against black domination. I have cherished the ideal of a democratic and free society in which all persons live together and in harmony and with equal opportunities. It is an ideal which I hope to live for and to achieve, but if needs be, it is an ideal for which I am prepared to die." Given the brutal nature of South Africa's criminal justice system and the most existential threat that the idea of black liberation posed for the apartheid nation, most people around the world believe that the prisoners will be put to death. As historian Gerald Horn notes, quote, Even as the trial was unfolding, President Lyndon Johnson was being pressured to intervene. James Farmer, one of the big six leaders of the anti-Jim Crow movement, urged him to take action to secure the release of African political prisoners. Fourteen distinguished leaders of churches from across the world joined with an equal number of Negro leaders from U.S. churches in Atlanta, demanding that the White House intervene in the death trial of Nelson Mandela. These are all men of character and integrity, it was said insistently. There is a rising wave of protests abroad, noted the director of U.S. Central Intelligence, against the possible imposition of death sentences or long prison terms on the defendants in the Riviona trial. Mandela himself would later write that he expected to be put to death. Quote, I was prepared for the death penalty. To be truly prepared for something, one must actually expect it. One cannot be prepared for something while secretly believing it will not happen. We were all prepared, not because we were brave, but because we were realistic. The Nigerian foreign minister summoned a U.S. envoy as the trial came to a head, asking him to pass a message to Pretoria that a death penalty ruling, quote, might result in incidents much worse than Sharpville. 
creating an impossible situation in which the population of Nigeria would demand retribution. A journalist, Colin Legman, leaked a conversation that he had with American and British diplomats to Pretoria, warning that if the prisoners were put to death, both countries feared that there would be attacks against their respective embassies. Still, outside of the strategic leak through the press, the new Johnson administration remained silent. In June of 1964, the UN Security Council passed a resolution urging Pretoria to end the trial and grant amnesty for all the defendants. The U.S. and the U.K. abstained from the vote, citing Pretoria's, quote, right to defend itself. On June 12th, in a packed courthouse in Pretoria with pro-apartheid demonstrators waving banners outside, the judge dismissed the claims of the defense and the greater international community that the defendants had committed a crime in the name of a, quote, just cause. The judge's reasoning is so insane that it's probably worth reading out here. Um, <laughs> quote, I have heard a great deal during the course of this case about the grievances of the non-European population. The accused have told me and their counsel have told me uh, that the accused, who were all leaders of the non-European population, were motivated entirely by a desire to ameliorate these grievances. I am by no means convinced that the motives of the accused were as altruistic as they wished the court to believe. People who organize a revolution usually take over the government and personal ambition cannot be excluded as a motive. So <laughs> you say their grievances about being mistreated under apartheid uh, can't be taken seriously because if you ended apartheid, their situation would get better, which means those grievances are really just personal ambition. <laughs> 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 Gotta love the courts. <laughs> yeah. That reads as like, uh, here's why Killmonger was bad, actually. Uh, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Here's why it's important to reinstitute uh, ancient monarchies. Yeah, yeah. Then switching to a low whisper so as to be barely audible, the judge read out the sentences. He began by stating that the state would not be putting the defendants to death, but would instead give them life in prison. The interesting thing about this sort of discussion of, you know, the United States and South Africa at, at the 1960s, at the sort of pivotal moment for civil rights, both in the United States and in South Africa itself, is the sort of concerns that are being, you know, weighed by the Kennedy and then Johnson administration, which let's just say have very little to do with uh, things that you might hear uh, from them publicly about human rights or anything yeah, like right. that, right? You know, concerns seem to mainly involve imperialism, the empire, winning the Cold War, etc. A lot of which uh, we could see, you know, the the trials, the Ravonia trial was at the time held as an international embarrassment. I mean, everybody thought they were going to get the death penalty and were certainly pleasantly surprised that you know, Mandela at all did not. Um, but the imprisoning of Mandela on like Robben Island and things like that uh, were considered to be international embarrassments, further cementing South Africa's, uh, you know, pariah status in the international community. But the thing is, you can be a pariah state. Uh, you know, where 99% of the world thinks of you as some sort of monstrous, you know, growth 
if you have the backing of the most important state. <laughs> yeah. Right. You know, uh, the United States. And so it's worth sort of asking, you know, kind of what happened to U.S. support for South Africa to do a little, you know, uh, a postscript on this <laughs> on this episode. He just kind of dipped out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but here's uh, I just want to do this reading this is from uh, Gabriel Kolka's book, Confronting the Third World, talking about U.S. military aid in South Africa in the 1960s, quote. A U.S. missile tracking station was installed in South Africa in 1960, and overflight and landing rights for U.S. military aircraft, port facilities for the Navy, joint surveillance of Soviet ships, and probably intelligence sharing also followed. The racist regime quickly learned that it could deal with the new American government, successfully demanding the right to buy U.S. arms in return for continued use of tracking sites. In the UN, the Americans opposed mandatory trade sanctions against South Africa, and while it publicly opposed apartheid, it loyally defended the whites against constant assaults within the UN itself. And, you know, uh, yeah. does this sound familiar? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe to a particular country today that maybe yeah, has right. something resembling apartheid that is able to survive. Some is actually uh, you know, accused and uh rightly deemed an apartheid state itself. <laughs> One who maybe tried to give South Africa nukes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I mean the calculus of sort of the Kennedy administration and every administration following was always that, but South Africa is too critical for the Cold War. Uh, one, because of its geographic location, allows us to check the, you know, anybody trying to cross the Horn of Africa, right? You know, submarines, etc., right? You know, allows us to track naval movements south of the Horn of Africa. Its geographic location is also right next to a lot of very important at the time, you know, mineral mines and things like that, that the U.S. is concerned about where those resources are going, in particular gold, which could be used to disrupt, you know, the Bretton Woods system. And given those facts on the ground, the U.S. position was, sorry, black people of South Africa, no freedom for you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you, you get apartheid. You, uh, that would be a little too destabilizing, which interestingly says something about what America thinks is necessary for capitalism to survive. Ending apartheid would be too destabilizing, right? So, like, black people having civil rights is too destabilizing for <laughs> capitalism's continued existence. Interesting. Right? You know, the U.S. is, again, knee-jerk. I mean, the Soviet Union did, of course, support the ANC and things like that, right, in African <laughs> yeah. you know, liberation movements. But the U.S., I mean, you know, really, even in at times when they didn't have the evidence to prove that, just assumed, well, of course, the communists are going to support liberation movements right and of course we have to support the their oppressors it's you like kind of like it's weird because it's just like so overtly like we are the bad guys you know like it's like yeah, <laughs> yeah. of course that they'll like you know like support the good things that will like have like you know actually like consequentially like you know uh good outcomes so we have to support these like insane like <laughs> apartheid uh oppression like schemes basically right like yeah. i mean um and like brutal systems right it's like yeah of course like the ussr would be all over like that good thing you know mm-hmm. it's like it's, it, it it's it seems like it's just so on the nose but it's very i mean that's just like kind of you know 
reality in a lot of cases, especially this case. Yeah, so I mean, let's let's hear Colco continues talking about U.S. policy towards South Africa under the Johnson administration. Quote, when Johnson entered the White House, the basic U.S. policy of courting African opinion while maintaining solid business and military relations with South Africa continued. Occasionally, it tilted to assuage public opinion on specific questions, but it maintained functionally strong ties with the racist regime. For internal purposes, the administration opposed violent black resistance under all conditions. Yet it also thought majority rule unlikely to be obtained by any means, including peaceful. It believed the country too important to the United States to risk it being lost via black arms struggle. So its white rulers obtained what they needed from the Americans, and only when they demanded advanced arms in unnecessary quantities did the administration impose constraints upon it. This approach had overwhelming support both within the government and from major business constituencies. At the end of 1967, the State Department admitted to itself that, quote, a fully consistent policy is probably impossible at this time. But in practice, U.S. policy throughout this decade was overwhelmingly supportive of the racist order in South Africa, for which it obtained major economic and strategic returns. Now, spoiler alert, uh, that consistency in policy is going to extend pretty much all the way to 1991 and Mandela's release uh, from prison. But it is this interesting point, and I think, you know, it sort of begs the question a bit about, uh, you know, terms like racial capitalism and things like that in the sense that racial capitalism implies a capitalism exists without racism. And I think when we look at U.S. policy, particularly in the world and domestically, it seems racism is pretty fundamental, actually, to capitalism's existence. (laughs) These are not two separate categories, but in fact, just one category called capitalism. It's worth exploring this idea of if capitalism is absolutely required or racism is absolutely required for capitalist exploitation, what is the function of various movements? Right. You know, uh, like, you know, can there be an African liberate liberation without the elimination of capitalism internationally? I don't know. Yeah, it's a hard question. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it is a hard question. It's a hard situation that, you know, uh, people who. Uh, you know, do fight for freedom have to be confronted with, right? Um, you know, a lot of African countries, and this is kind of like the movement that we'll probably be talking about in the future uh, episodes is like, you know, um, the movement from abject uh, direct colonialism to uh, more neocolonialism, right? Like after independence movements is not like um, forces of capital went away um, if, you know, they, uh, you know, kept the current systems in place, whether that was their choosing or just like larger forces that kind of, you know, had <laughs> made them have a hard decision to make. Right. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that means that, you know, like, uh, you know, the colonial uh, corporations might still be uh, controlling all of your natural resources, for instance. Right. Or like yeah. we'll still be exploiting a lot of them. Right. Um, they might mean that there's still power within, you know, the government and influence within the government from their former metropole, um, as well as just like the, you know, Western state. If capitalism is still thriving in that country and is still just around and it's not like mm-hmm. directly and intentionally eliminated, right? That means like the disparities between gender and race uh, within classes um, will, uh, you know, continue. And it will be, it's hard to fight against that if the root is not really dealt with right but it's you know 
easy for us Americans to sit on this chair and say, oh, well, if I was a if I was a revolutionary in South yeah. Africa, I would just end capitalism after we <laughs> took power, you know, yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> because it is it is more than just like waving a wand and saying that is a, it, ending capitalism is a very direct action that you have to take that has significant consequences. And if, you know, one country is liberated, but you're still existing in a global capitalist system, um, it is it is pretty utopian to say, oh, we can just completely, you know, end the idea of capitalism in our country only. Right. That's why a lot of, um, you know, uh, communist thinkers say that it has to be an international movement and it can't be constricted within borders. Um, which is kind of why, why you see these contradictions, um, you know, post-revolution a lot and why um, similar to even uh, more local issues, why you kind of see some like, you know, the promise of a revolution kind of hit some walls because, you know, the overall system that they're existing in is still a capitalist system that they have to participate in whether they like it or not. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and until that there's a larger, you know, global uh, either pan-African struggle or like, you know, just global working class struggle, um, you know, that that would continue. Yeah. And it's one of those things that, you know, particularly in the last 50 years, I mean, the U.S. left never does anything. So it makes it very easy to criticize stuff because you have nothing to criticize in return. Yeah, right. right? There's nothing but, uh, we can do at home. But, so, yeah. but it is an important point to remember, you know, these are actual people on the ground making, you know, actual real decisions. They're not armchair quarterbacking, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, those decisions have serious consequences for living human beings. And, you know, when we talk about the necessity of racism and, you know, the necessity to intensely exploit things like race and gender inequality and things like that for capitalism to survive, it means any challenge to that is going to be met by the capitalist system as an existential threat, right, to capitalism itself, right, to the survival of capitalism itself. And in South Africa, what that meant was what they called total strategy, right, Mm -hmm. which was a system of intense counterinsurgency within the country itself. Uh, They modeled it after the thinking and theorizing of a French general named André Bouffre, who his, you know, experience in the French military was uh, he was head of the counterinsurgency occupation in Vietnam. Uh, Good job. Uh, Then he moved to Algeria, where he won again. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) Jesus. And interestingly, he also was uh, one of the uh, forces leaders for NATO in Europe at the time when Gladio was happening, you know. I don't know. Maybe somebody should look into that a little. Quite but, a resume. <laughs> yeah. A, a true demonic force on this planet. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the South African military, of course, invited him many times. They studied this work intensely, but invited him to come and talk. And Bouffray's theory was that essentially insurgent movements, you know, they're different and only in the sort of what their infrastructure looks like, right? So if you're going to war against just another industrial power and just standard, you know, war, like World War One or something like that, you might want to bomb the factories, right, of your enemy, right? Bomb the airfields and all that kind of stuff. And Buffray was saying, well, insurgents have that same infrastructure. It just is different, right? And that that infrastructure is the population itself. Yep. So instead of hunting down insurgent leaders and things like that just kill the local population just 
torture them, kill them, terrorize them, build a massive state infrastructure dedicated to this purpose. Right. Yeah. And which, as we talked about in like the global Cold War episode, actually did happen. You know, like, yeah. I mean, like that, it's not, um, it's not just a threat. It's something that, uh, you know, capital and the Western state actually took action on and, you know, eliminated. It wasn't targeting, you know, oil infrastructure of, you know, the ruling class. It was just, you know, wiping out the people. Cause like, what can, <laughs> cause that is the actual power that, you know, people have is like the numbers and organization. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. And, and the thing is, is, you know, so we create this chain, right? Where, which, you know, I mean, we've been creating this chain during this entire series, right? Where we talk about racism as it currently exists, right? Is this product of capitalism, its need to exploit at higher and higher levels to gain excess surplus value, right? To oppose racism then means ultimately to oppose capitalism itself, whether you know that as you're doing it or not, right? That's how the capitalist class sees it as an existential threat. So mm-hmm. then, they meet you with overwhelming force and in many countries, including the United States, which we'll get into later, uh, with pretty intense counterinsurgency campaigns against the population at large. And when we talk about why the, you know, the Cold War period is so bloody and is so violent, this is a large part of it, right? Is this sort of, you know, historical play that's that's playing itself out. And it's one of those things that I think for left movements that were more prepared for that, I would say because they had a better understanding of capitalism and how it works and things yeah. like that. Yes. <laughs> I, I think they, you know, while still receiving a lot of violence from the capitalist system, were more successful for left movements that were less prepared for those things that maybe had a lot more liberal ideas about, <laughs> you know, living in harmony or something like that. They were less prepared for the onslaught of the forces of capitalism and were largely destroyed. And, yep. you know, that is sadly the story of the sort of post-Cold War period, which is not to disparage any of these groups, but to just point out a reality, right, of what yeah. happened. Now, the interesting thing, too, is about the role of imperial powers in all of this, right? Because South Africa obviously was able to play this game for a very long time, you know, creating apartheid, maintaining apartheid, uh, whereas a country right next door, uh, the fantasy land of Rhodesia was only able to maintain this for a very short period of time. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And the difference being, I would say the mineral uh, low, like the the gold essentially in South Africa, right? Uh, The industrial investments that the United States had in South Africa and the fact that the U.S. was like, "Ah, eh, we already got one military power in the region. We don't got to fund another one. Yeah, <laughs> right. And I mean, like the, South Africa is just uh, population wise, just scale of like both resources and population is so, so much bigger. I mean, like, you know, what is now Zimbabwe, right, you know, is a mm-hmm. very small country in comparison to mm-hmm. um, South Africa in many ways. Right. To control South Africa really, you know, has like a grip on the entire like, you know, southern African you know region in general right and so this like you know like kind of white autarky like ethno state of rhodesia was like a you know settler colonial you know project for sure and a very bloody and brutal one that had a lot of you know rich uh natural resources to exploit and they did for sure um but on the scale of south africa it's really hard to compare that and just like the sheer labor potential 
um, that was there as well, right? Um, it, it was just two kind of different approaches just based on material realities of those two countries. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, that being said, though, I mean, the U.S. Uh, was still perfectly happy to, through South Africa, funnel weapons into uh, the briefly uh, existing Rhodesia. And then once Rhodesia collapsed, uh, the United States has been happy to punish Zimbabwe on an yeah. international you know, scale. Uh, economically for you know freeing itself from this colonial rule uh but that gets me to a point about two when we talk about like imperial power matters right the networks that the empire is able to create and in the 1970s south africa becomes a total pariah state and by this point many countries across the world have economic embargoes on south africa like they won't even let the, their goods come to port they've also started to put weapons embargoes on south africa like you can't ship weapons through any of our ports that are ultimately going to end up in south africa and it becomes a little embarrassing to be giving them all these weapons uh so south africa is able to you know what might have strangled apartheid uh is it's able to be kept alive because of the imperial network of the United States and that South Africa signs in 1975, a security pact with Israel that immediately leads to a $200 million arms shipment from Israel to South Africa. Now this is a mixture of Israeli made weapons, which they're trying to get in the game of making weapons in the 1970s, as well as American weapons that have been given to Israel that are now being given to South Africa. Right. And so the United States can use these countries like Israel, Israel to funnel weapons to places that are maybe a little embarrassing uh, at the time <laughs> for the U.S. to be giving arms to. Right? It's it's like a like a shell company scheme on a large yes. scale. Exactly. Right. Exactly. You know, and uh, the this builds a pretty deep relationship between Israel and South Africa. So in 1981, the Israeli Army Chief of Staff uh, Raful Aitan. We'll just guess if that's the correct pronunciation, <laughs> told an audience at Tel Aviv University that blacks, quote, want to gain control over the white minority, just like the Arabs here want to gain control over us. <laughs> and we, too, like the white minority in South Africa, must act to prevent them from taking us over. My God, he just said it. <laughs> he just he said it. He, he admitted it. You know, um, and. You know, Israel all the way up to the end was, you know, at an increasing level every year, just pumping weapons into South Africa, which leads to one of the more interesting sort of moments of uh, that that relationship is that uh, Israel might have also helped South Africa develop a nuclear weapon that they might or might not have exploded in the desert and what is now Namibia. Uh and potentially also exploded one in the ocean just south of the Horn of Africa. Um, you know, uh, we know that South Africa built nuclear weapons. The question is whether or not they tested them. Uh, we know that the Israelis were critical in getting uh, elements that South Africa needed to build a nuclear weapon to South Africa. And according to Gerald Horn, uh, also, the U.S. might have been providing a lot of technical aid. <laughs> to, now, you know, uh, so this is some interesting stuff that I didn't know that is in uh, Gerald Horn's book, uh, White Supremacy Confronted, which is about the U.S. relationship with apartheid South Africa. Um, 
So according to Horn, between 1955 and 1977, at least 100 South African nuclear technicians were seconded to the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission, meaning the U.S. got them put on the Atomic Energy Commission. Uh, In 1965, South Africa received a research reactor as well as highly enriched uranium from the United States under the Atoms for Peace program. Pretoria immediately went about trying to create weapons-grade uranium for it. And and so, I mean, so many things, right, all tangled up, right? We talked about in an early episode how Atoms for Peace was used as essentially a cover for the U.S. nuclear program, uh, weapons program, right? And now we're seeing how that's now a cover for essentially developing a nuclear weapon so that white South Africans can maintain apartheid. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, you know that then South Africa used to develop a weapon and potentially uh, violate the test ban, uh, the international test ban that the U.S. and Soviet Union had agreed to and that, you know, the U.N. had agreed to. Right. Uh, multiple times in the 1970s. Right. Potentially twice in 1979. It, it just... You know, I don't know. It, this is demonic shit. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I don't know how else to describe this. I mean, the U.S. was willing. To, just remember this. Every time the U.S. complains about nuclear proliferation, the U.S. essentially aided apartheid South Africa in developing nuclear weapons. A, A thing nuke. They, yeah, things they would not have been able to do on their own, almost certainly. But, um, it's crazy. To, yeah, I mean, <laughs> God. And it's more like if you think about how, like, Israel is thriving today, you know, Mm -hmm. like it's even just more miraculous in some ways that, you know, um, like the apartheid state of South Africa officially, at least, you know, um, was like dismantled and they did gain independence because, you know, these (laughs) I mean, Israel being around today in the U.S. having like very not even like, I mean, like mask off support of it. I Mm -hmm. mean, just shows that it's still very normal and acceptable and easy to you know propagandize the fact that like you know apartheid states can still exist like in modern day right so i don't know it's just like these israel and south africa are very similar and you know when people actually you know are either asking me or like kind of trying to learn like oh why i'm so against like you know like (laughs) israel and not knowing that it it might is it's like you know think about like i was kind of put in the context of south africa like you know israel is Mm -hmm. a continuation of like you know apartheid um in a lot of ways and like you know the crimes of you know the south african apartheid white minority government is like very in in its fundamental ways a one-to-one you know of like what israel is doing like today to palestinians right um yeah and yeah, I mean, it's, it, it kind of, I don't know, it's kind of shocking. No, it's shocking is not the right word. It's not shocking, but it's just like, it's just kind of crazy to me that it's like <laughs> just allowed to exist so openly. Um, while, while I think at the same time, a lot of mythologizing is like, oh, South Africa was a thing of the past, you know, like that was only 1995, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, and it's an interesting thing. I mean, particularly on the on the nuclear question and the question of nuclear pro- proliferation, which I mean, people should be concerned about. But you know, depending on what story you want to believe, I mean, the U.S. either intentionally or unintentionally essentially facilitated the development of nuclear weapons in Israel itself, right? Yeah, uh, by giving designs and things like that to you know whether they whether that was. Uh, given to them by the united states or they got it via spycraft you know i 
choose what you want to believe. I'm going to venture yeah, and guess we gave right. it to him. But, yeah. uh, but the U.S. also threw Israel were the ones who helped Pakistan develop a nuclear weapon as well, right? So, I mean, this is the the destabilizing role that imperialism plays internationally, right? Now, the other destabilizing role is, you know, we might ask, what are we getting for all this that we give, you know, aid that we give to South Africa? And what we got was decades of unending war in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, essentially perpetrated by or, you know, by South Africa. Right. So, you know, there was the South African border war, which lasts from 1966 to 1990, where South Africa is essentially making war on all of its neighbors, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, uh, in in the guise of trying to put down ANC forces. By the way, Israel did this exact same thing to put down the PLO. It's why I invaded Lebanon. Yep. Right. Etc. Um you know, but essentially what happens is that South Africa is using its soldiers to try and put down any sort of left movement anywhere across its borders. There's also South Africa's role in the Angolan Civil War, where left forces backed by Cuba and the Soviet Union were almost certainly marching towards an easy victory in Angola until South Africa invaded Angola, right? You know, Um you know, leading to war. I mean, these wars are killing millions of people, you know, probably a million people died in the Angolan Civil War. Right. You know, a war that went from 1975, 1991. I mean, this would talk about the, essentially South Africa was used to draw out these bloodbaths across Africa to ensure that there would be no unifying force in Africa pushing towards African independence. Right. Again, South Africa, the Mozambican Civil War, the South African military is playing the large part in training, arming, and fighting alongside Renamo. Renamo would become the source of international terrorism for a decade <laughs> uh, after the end of the Mozambican Civil War. Uh, again, another war that probably killed at least a million people. I mean, you know, just across those three wars alone, we're probably talking three million dead, um, you know, over the course of about 15 years. I mean, this was South Africa's role. This was not an accidental thing that you know happened despite USAID but was the product and intention of USAID you know when we talk about destabilizing regions this is what we mean is mass violence you know on yeah. a very intense level we could probably look at the history of Israel in a different light and we will in a later episode <laughs> as essentially accomplishing <laughs> the same task right it also leads to this question of mercenaries where you know, particularly the Rhodesian military after the collapse of Rhodesia, as well as the South African military, uh, as I said, with the issue of Renamo in Mozambique, formed the spine of the international mercenary community for decades. Uh, again, if you were a right-wing dictator who was worried that the workers were getting too uppity, you could always hire South African or Rhodesian mercenaries to come in and murder civilians on your behalf, right? You know, if uh, you needed a union leader, you know, union hall blowing up these guys for your guys. Right. Uh, you know, just the level of destabilization of U.S. policy in the Horn of Africa. I mean, it just can't be understated or no. overstated. Sorry. Um, but yeah, which brings us, I think, to a, another question that's a little interesting, which is this relationship between national and international struggles. Mm -hmm. And we set up this episode in this 
particular way, not just because we wanted to talk about something that we don't often talk about, which is, you know, the political struggle in Africa in the Cold War period. But we set it up because we want to show there's a relationship between these struggles, both domestically for civil rights in the United States and internationally in places like South Africa. And that relationship is that the United States is trying to maintain (laughs) these (laughs) systems of racist exploitation all over the world and that the people it, you know fighting in sharps in sharpville and getting killed in sharpville south africa have a lot more in common with the people fighting and dying in birmingham than they do with the people in pretoria or dc respectively yeah exactly and i and i think the story of the american civil rights movement when it reaches its most militant period is the increasing realization on the part of people in the united states that that is in fact the case and we hinted towards it but I, even Martin Luther King, the head the, of the mainstream civil rights movement with the SCLC, is going to come to that conclusion in 1967. And then the FBI is going to kill him shortly after. Spoiler alert. Um, yeah. You know, and it's a downer because of what we know, the history of what actually happened. But I think, you know, this is a call for internationalism and the importance of internationalism. Yep. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, maybe we'll leave on that sad note. <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah, so we want to leave you with not just words, but the voices of the civil rights movement. Angela Davis grew up on Dynamite Hill in Birmingham, Alabama. The children that were murdered in the 16th Street church bombing were family friends. When asked about violent versus nonviolent political organizing by an interviewer in 1972, she responded by rejecting the false dichotomy. Yeah, but the question is, more: how do you get there? Do you get there by confrontation, violence? Oh, is that the question you were asking? Yeah. See, that's, I mean, that's another thing. When you talk about a revolution, most people think violence um, without realizing that the real content of any kind of revolutionary thrust lies in the, in, in the principles and the goals that you're striving for, not in the way you reach them. On the other hand, uh, because of the way this society is organized, because of the violence that exists on the surface everywhere, you have to expect that there are going to be such explosions. You have to expect things like that as reactions. If you are a black person and live in, 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 in the black community all your life and walk out on the street every day seeing white policemen surrounding you, I, when I was living in Los Angeles, for instance, long before the situation in L.A. ever occurred, uh, I was constantly stopped. No, the, the, the police didn't know who I, who I was, but I was a black woman. And I had a, had a natural, and, and they, I suppose, thought that I might be a, quote, militant. And when you live under a situation like that constantly, um, uh, and, t- and, then, and then you ask me, you know, whether I approve of violence. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, whether I approve of guns. I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, some very, very good friends of mine were killed by bombs, bombs that were planted by racists. Uh, 
I remember it from, from the time I was very small. I remember the sounds of bombs exploding across the street, our house shaking. I remember my father having to have guns at his disposal at all times because of the fact that at any moment uh, uh, someone we, we might expect to be attacked. The man who was at that time in con complete control of the city government, his name was Bull Connor, uh, would often get on the radio and make statements like uh, 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 niggas have moved into a white neighborhood, uh, we better expect some bloodshed tonight. And sure enough, there would be bloodshed. Uh, after the four young girls who were, who lived very, who lived, one of them lived uh, next door to me. Um, I was very good friends with the sister of, of another one. My, f my sister was very good friends with all three of them. My mother taught one of them in her class. My mother, in fact, when the bombing occurred, one of the mothers of uh, one of the young girls called my mother and said, uh, can you take me down to the church to pick up uh, Carol? I, you know, we heard about the bombing, and I, and I don't have my car. And they went down, and what did they find? They found limbs and heads strewn all over the place. And then after that, uh, in my neighborhood, all of the men organized themselves into an armed patrol. They had to take their guns and patrol our community every night because they did not want that to happen again. I mean, that's why when someone asked me about violence, uh, uh, I just, uh, I just find it incredible, it, because it, what it means is that the person who's asking that question has absolutely no idea what black people have gone through, what black people have experienced in this country since the time the first black person was kidnapped from the shores of Africa. The end is not yet written, the song is not yet sung, how racist laws were put to flame and racist bosses hung. Of black and white together, of lives made whole at last, of a communistic future, of a fascist system's past. South Africa means fight back. This is what we say. South Africa means fight back, my friends, and fight back means today. South Africa means fight back, fight back. This is what we say. South Africa means fight back, my friends. And fight back means...